have some children leave for their own discipleship, I'm reminded that today is a special day in my family. Today is my daughter Shiloh's gotcha day. Gotcha, yeah. There, yep. Not birthday, but if you're in the adoption world, gotcha day means that's when the parents meet the child, and uh, it was a wonderful day for us many years ago, and she's my beloved daughter, so shout out to her. Now I'm going to tell a story that will embarrass her. <laughs> so maybe you've taught someone to swim before, but it can be a really scary experience. I, my daughter is a good swimmer now. She swims on her rec swim team, does a great job. But there was a time when she did not know how to swim, and like most of us, she was very scared to learn. So I remember that day vividly, or days, I should say weeks it took to teach her how to swim. And what the method I was using was, you go into the pool at a place where I can stand up, but she cannot. And we both know it, right? So she's going to have to swim. And what I do is I hold on to her, and I teach her to do a basic tread stroke, a dog paddle, tread water. And I hold her and show her that she can do it. She can kick. She can paddle. Everything is good. I'm not really holding you. You can stay up. And she looks at me and she's so scared. And after doing it successfully for a while for me holding her, here's what I say. I say, all right, now I am going to just let you go and step back. And if you keep treading, you'll swim to me. Yeah. And she looks at me. She's so scared. She's like, oh, I don't know about this. How I've done it with all your other siblings. You can do this. We got it. Let's go. And so I have her here. And I see as I'm letting go, she's looking at me, but she's also looking at the wall. That's not too far away. That's a small pool. And I can see the mental calculations. This guy's moving away from me, but that wall ain't moving. So I'm going for the wall. And as I start to let her go, I said, believe in me. Trust my words. If you just paddle, you'll get there. Have confidence in me right now. One, two, three. Let's go. And then in slow motion, she turns not towards me, but towards the wall, not stroking or treading or kicking, but in a slow motion lunge. Of course, you can probably guess what happens. If you don't kick, if you don't strive, if you don't paddle, we have a sinking Shiloh. Now, rest assured, it was okay. I'm just a foot away from it. Everything's okay. But that day, she learned a lesson that I was trying to teach her, which is have confidence in me. You know, if I tell you something, just just trust me, because if you try it any other way, you're going to sink. Today, as we get to the book of Numbers, in our preaching series here through the Pentateuch, we're going to see that Numbers is a hard book to read. It's hard because it's kind of dark. We see God's people really struggling, struggling with all kinds of wild things, bizarre stories, and people die, which makes it hard to read sometimes. But we'll also see here, as we're reading through it, uh, something that we don't see in every book. It's that Bible writers in the New Testament actually tell us what to make of these stories, right? Most of the time when you read in the Old Testament, you're not going to have someone clearly say, well, oh, this is what you do with that story. But in the book of Numbers, we do. So as we preach through Numbers, I'm actually going to start in the book of Hebrews. So if you can turn to Numbers, stick your finger in it, and then turn forward to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews. I just want to read from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. A little behind the scenes look here for you, behind the curtain. As elders, we often plan ahead of time what books we're going to pray through and preach through and work through together. And it seems that, Roger can attest to this, just about every time we bring up a new book, bless God, Pastor Hunter will say, why don't we do Hebrews? We could be talking about any book in the Bible, and Hunter will say, eh, about Hebrews. So this is the nod to Pastor Hunter. We've got to keep him quiet and satisfied. We're starting with Hebrews, even though we're in Numbers. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Here's how we can make sense of numbers. The author says, Take care, brothers, lest there is in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away 
from the living God. Your job is to take care, to be alert. Lest you fall away. Actually, I was talking about Shiloh's gotcha day, and this morning I looked at a picture of the moment when we came off the plane from China, and we had a lot of friends there waiting for us at the airport. Some of you were there, very thankful for that. But some of the people in that picture have since fallen away. They don't worship Jesus anymore. When we took the picture, they did, and now they do not. It's a very real thing he's talking about here. Trust me, or you will sink. Verse 13. But exhort one another every day. That's my job today. It is to exhort you. That means urge. Urge one another that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hold firm to your confidence. We swim in Christ. Look, he said, verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Then we live in Him. We unite in Him if we trust in Him. Verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet Rebel. Now he's going to turn our attention in Hebrews to the book of Numbers. I know it's complicated, but now he's thinking about Numbers, and he's going to use the people in Numbers as a negative example. What not to do? Don't do what those people did. Your faith is at stake. It continues on. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses, verse 17, and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? Whose bodies fell in the wilderness today will hear stories about bodies falling in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. That's what we're trying to avoid when we read numbers. We're trying to stoke belief and avoid unbelief in our hearts today. Those people sank because they did not have confidence in the living God. You flip over to Hebrews 4, verse 11. You'll read this. Well, what do we do? Well, let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Strive. How do we strive? How do we stroke? not to sink. How do we keep afloat? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 3 in Hebrews. For we who have believed enter that rest. Our striving is believing. It's trusting. It's having confidence that God is going to do what He says He's going to do in your everyday life. That's how you strive. You believe. You trust Him. That if I, if I do what you say, I'm not going to sink to the bottom of the life's pool. I'm going to swim. So we read numbers so that our hearts do not get hardened the way their hearts were hardened. It's almost like uh, uh, videos that are viral now on Instagram or YouTube. You may have seen them. It's popular to have a, a, a pet owner with his dog. So you'll have a golden retriever on your phone. And the owner will come up with a, a bowl of food, right? And like my dog would, the golden retriever just goes at it. <laughs> Splashes everywhere. Very rude behavior for a dog. But he's tearing into it. And then the owner will bring up a puppet of a dog. And that puppet will look a lot like that golden retriever. And the puppet will come up. And the owner will offer a bowl of food to that puppet dog. And that puppet dog will go... <laughs> just like the real dog did, right? Except the owner then grabs a rolled-up newspaper and he gives this puppet discipline. Spanks the puppet. And the whole time you see the real dog like... And then the owner takes the food bowl back over to the real dog. And the real dog's like, no thanks. I'm not going to scarf my food anymore. Negative consequences are a motivator and sometimes we read numbers in that way but I also want you to see today as we go through numbers there's something more as well there is presented to us a God who is worth trusting 
a God is worthy of your confidence. So that you don't fall away. That you turn away from that doggy bowl of sin and turn towards Him in trust today. You'll see a God who's clearly calling to you, have confidence in me. Have confidence in me. So let's get started. The title of this sermon is To Hell and Back, and that's actually a section heading of a famous book written by a guy named Stephen Dempster. And in that book, he goes on and on and talks about how much trials and how many tribulations the people of God had to go through. It's like they went through hell to learn lessons. And today, God doesn't want you to have to go through that. So let's pay attention to what the author has for us in numbers so that our hearts are not hardened. That's a lot of stories in the book of Numbers. We're just going to concentrate on four today. And these four will have the same pattern. You'll see over and over, God's people rebel against Him. God shows us His glorious justice. And then He also shows that He is faithful to be merciful to His people. So let's look at that pattern as we go. Let's start in chapter 13. Book of Numbers, chapter 13. Here we're going to find the people of God after they spent an entire year at Mount Sinai. They take a census, they get themselves organized, and then they start marching towards the land that God has promised them. So far, so good. Now they arrive at the tip, the very southern tip of Canaan, the promised land. They arrive here. And Moses says, what we need is some recon work. We need some of you to spy out this foreign land. And that's what we hear in verse 17 of chapter 13. Let's start there. We read that Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Gib and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they would dwell in is good or bad. And whether the cities that dwell in have camps or strongholds. They're looking out for forts. They don't want to come up against strongholds. And whether the land is rich or poor. God's already told them the land's going to be rich. And whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage. That's Moses' way of saying, have confidence in God. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land back. Now the time was the season of the first Right, grapes. He wants to know. He wants to show the people, yes, this is plentiful land. God is worthy to be trusted. So the spies go out. All 12 of them, them, they go from the southern tip of Canaan all the way up to the north, all the way through the land, and then back in 40 days. In verse 32, they get back and we see what they have to say. We see the report. Verse 32. So the spies brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. They'd spied it out and they said the land through which we've just gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Why does that matter? Well, combat tended to be face to face there and they were scared of these big people. Verse 33, and we saw the Philem, the sons of Anak who came from the Philem and we, we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them also. Of the twelve spies that went, only two were faithful and trusted God. Caleb and Joshua were willing to take these guys on. Now, what happens next is going to be crucial. And you're going to see that the true issue with them is not a height issue, it's a heart issue. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. All the congregation heard this report. What did they do? They raised a loud cry. Ah! And they wept at night. Cried themselves to sleep. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. Whose fault's this? Must be Moses and Aaron. And when you blame Moses and Aaron, you're pointing the finger at God Himself. You're saying, I have no confidence in you. The The whole congregation says to Moses and Aaron, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Oh. Or, would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing 
directly blaming God. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? And now we're going to die. Why did God bring us here? God had promised the land to His people. Their role is to have confidence in His Word. Verse 14.11 reads, God's going to respond. The Lord says to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. That's His way of saying, Trust in me. Have confidence in me. Yet the people cried out against Him. They lose hope. They stop believing. Maybe you can relate to that. In March of 1970, there was a man named Alvin Glekowski. He was a merchant marine on a sea vessel for the United States. And he decided he was no longer going to believe in America or any of its causes. America was at war. This guy Alvin is on the boat. And he says, I'm going to stage a huge protest. And the way to do it is mutiny of this vessel. So Alvin grabs a gun and he goes up to the captain and holds him at gunpoint and says, I'm taking over. Clear everybody out. So he abandons all the crew at sea and he heads the vessel in the direction of his choosing, which is the neutral country of Cambodia. Not a great plan, but he heads there. And he heads there and he arrives and he says, I'm protesting America. Little did he know a new government had taken over Cambodia. And they promptly arrested him. So the mutiny wasn't going well. He was shocked. But he later managed to escape. Thought, well, at least now I'm free. Where do I go? Well, it's a lot of jungle there. So he's into the jungle. And unfortunately for Alvin, he runs into a rogue group of guerrilla rebels. They capture him. They execute him. His mutiny got him nothing but misery. And so it is with our hearts. When we rebel against the living God, it's only misery that's going to be in store for us. So how will God respond to this mutiny against Him? We don't have time to read it all, but He responds with mercy and justice. At this point in the story, Moses goes and he intercedes for God on behalf of the people. And he says, God, I know your character. God, I know your promises. Please do not wipe us out because this is what we deserve. Your justice says we should be wiped out, but please pardon us. And God does pardon. Even all the way back to Eden, death has been the punishment for unholy rebellion against the holy God. But in His mercy, God pardons. But in His justice, He says to the people, you're not going into this land I prepared for you. Your children will go. And with just a few exceptions, that happens. Everybody that uh, did not believe Caleb and Joshua, they fail to enter the promised land, but their children get to go in. Well, the people hear this and they say, oh, I don't like the sound of that. I think we should go into the promised land now. So the people gather up and they said, Moses, we don't need you. Uh, we don't need the Ark of the Covenant. We'll take care of this ourselves. And they storm into the promised land. The Bible doesn't tell exactly how bad that route was, but the children of Israel were defeated miserably. We're told that they turned and they ran away. Many dying, no doubt. It's an awful story. So what are we to learn? What are we to learn from this? Well, let me ask you this. How many times in your life are you captivated by the fear of man? The fear of what others think. That voice is louder in your ear than the voice of the living God. Could be issues with your body image. Could be issues with people at work or people at school. Instead of following what God wants you to do, you hear their voices and you respond chiefly to their voices. Just think through, what does it look like in your life, one author put it this way. This is what he said. He said, around some people, we feel and we act like grasshoppers. Small, vulnerable, and powerless. Around others, we primarily feel judged 
and shamed and unwelcome. Like the way Simon the Pharisee treated Jesus and the woman who washed Christ's feet with her tears. That's from Luke 7. As our Creator, the Lord, has given us a relational DNA that intensely craves Jesus, a relentless hunger and thirst that only He can satisfy, mere people, even really good ones, will never be enough. At best, our most enjoyable human relationships are a gift, a, a hint, and a taste of what it means to belong to God. At worst, we use them as a substitute for Jesus. And that never goes well. Lord, forgive us and free us from this we are grasshoppers compared to you people-centered mentality. This passage is teaching us, oh, trust and God, have confidence in me. That's what he's saying to you today from Numbers. You have to apply it. You know where you struggle. Have confidence in me. He's worthy of your trust. Don't choose the misery of mutiny. Second point comes from Numbers 16. And it begins this story with more rebellion. Now, we actually preached through this chapter not long ago when we were going through the book of Jude. I'm sure you remember it. <laughs> no, we don't. Well, part of this chapter begins with a man named Korah. Korah was a Levite, and he leads an uprising against Moses. He says, my authority should be more than your authority. And he challenges Moses, doubting, doubting God's sovereign choice. The Lord responds in justice with a massive earthquake that actually swallows Korah up. And Jude, the book we previously studied, he was a preacher in the first century. He said, you guys, these false teachers that are in the church, they had the same attitude as Korah. Don't be like that. Put the false teachers out. So we've heard Korah's dramatic story, but that's not actually the story I want to hone in on here. I want to hone in on the story that begins in 1641 chapter 1641 take a look at this this is the day after this huge earthquake that swallowed some of the people up all the people who are following Korah were not there anymore they're just gone you wake up the next day and how would the people respond verse 41 on the next day all the congregation of the people of Israel did what grumbled against Moses now remember, we're not supposed to read this in a self-righteous way. The author of Hebrews says, read this because you could go there and snap. That could be you. Grumbling against the Lord. What did they say? They said, Moses and Aaron, you have killed the people of the Lord. It was your fault. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, they saw what they didn't want to see. There's a cloud covering this, the tent. This is the cloud of the glory of the Lord. If your heart's in the right place, you're happy to see that cloud. If you're rebelling against Him, you don't want to see that cloud. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and Moses heard from the Lord in verse 44. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Moses, you might need to get away from the midst of this congregation that I might consume them in a moment. That is the justice of God. They say repetition is the queen of learning. I read one study that says you need to read something 10 or 20 times before you actually start to learn it. That's why these stories have this pattern. God's people are rebels. They're deceived by sin. So much so that they blame Moses, they blame Aaron for the deaths of Korah and all his crew. His holy glory, our holy God, responds in justice. Verse 46 tells us that God's righteous judgment comes in the form of a plague. And 14,000 people die because of this rebellion. And then we see a striking picture of God's mercy. In the midst of this judgment, God's mercy 
slips right in. It's a phenomenal scene. See if you can track with it here. Starts in verse 47. Moses and Aaron notice that people are dying by the plague. So Aaron listens to Moses. Moses said, Aaron, go grab your priestly censer. Go grab your priest tools. They need a priest. So Aaron took it as Moses said, and he ran into the midst of the assembly, and behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And Aaron, he puts on the incense, and he makes atonement for the people. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague was stopped. Verse 49, those who died total, 14,700, besides those friends of Korah. Picture the scene in your mind. If you dare. The battlefield. Bodies are flying in the wilderness. There goes Aaron, the priest. He was an old man at this time. Famous preacher Charles Spurgeon pictured it like this. Listen to what he said. He said, a man, uh, he said, Aaron, who's a man of a hundred years of age, he fills his censer and he runs along as if he were a youth. And he begins to swing it towards heaven with holy energy, feeling that in his hand was the life of the people. And when the incense is accepted in heaven, death stops its work. On the side are heaps upon heaps of corpses slain by God's avenging angel. And there stand the crowd of the living people, living only because of Aaron's intercession, living simply because he had waved that censer and burned that incense for them. Otherwise, had the angel smitten them all, they would all have lain together as the leaves of the forest lie in autumn, dead and seared. Now what are we supposed to do with a story like that? That's dark. I'll tell you one thing. If you were in that situation, and you were one of the ones left standing alive, the one person on the whole planet that you would trust is old man Aaron. He's the guy you would trust in. Spurgeon continues and he says, Just so was it with Christ. Wrath had gone out against us. The law was about to smite us. The whole human race must be destroyed. Christ stands at the forefront of the battle. The stripes must fall on me, he cried. The arrow shall find a target in my breast. On me, Jehovah let thy vengeance fall. He receives that vengeance. And afterwards, upspringing from the grave, he waves a censer full of the merit of his blood and he bids this wrath and fury stand back. Stand back. So is the work of Christ on your behalf. Why are we bringing this up? It's because at some point today or tomorrow, or the next day, you're going to question whether God is worthy of your trust. When you do, I hope you remember Aaron in this bizarre story of him running out to a field of dying people and stopping the death. So it is with Christ on your behalf. He is worthy to be trusted. His sacrifice is enough. Christmas time, maybe this time of year you'll encounter a relationship that's really hard for you. You need to know, God calls to you. Have, have confidence in me. Maybe it has to do with missions giving. This time of year we ask you, give of your money to the sake of mission so that others may believe. And you might be thinking, I'm not into that. Trust, trust God, have confidence in him today. Third story here. Third story from the book of Numbers. Flip all the way to Numbers 21. God's people again are on the move, but they have to go around this country of Eden. Have to go around Edom. They don't like going around Edom because it's hard. It's a longer journey. Things are rough. And the people speak against Moses, they speak against God and against Moses, I can imagine them saying, hey, hey Moses, I have something that I've never shared before. You may not have considered 
Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? It's the same complaint they've always had. They bring it back up. Here's the reason now. For there is no food. Not true. They have manna. There's no food and there's no water. And I love this part. And we loathe this worthless food. Oh yeah, there's manna and we hate it. It's not clean food. It's not artisanal. Is it even local? I don't like this manna, God. I don't like it at all. It's sounding childish here. It's like if you've ever put your kids on a ride at the fair, like a, one of those roller coasters. I do this sometime, or Disney World. There's roller coasters that go around, and halfway around, they disappear in some building. And then they come out, and when they come out, my kids are like, I don't see them anymore. And then they come out of the tunnel, I don't see them. I'm just standing back, being a dad, watching them. It's like this, except it's the opposite, right? The children of Israel on a merry-go-round, and every time they come back and they're like, Oh, God, why have you left us? Oh, God, you're being unfair to us. I don't like your food. That's what this is. But it does remind me of my heart. But now behold the justice of the Lord. Verse 6 in chapter 21. Don't miss this. It's a crazy story. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. Fiery serpents. <laughs> Man, we were in our office this week and there was a lizard that came in. And that lizard was that big and it created quite a stir and consternation in our office. Think about a snake that is fiery. I don't even know what that looks like. It was awful. And it came. It began to bite people and they were dying. That's the justice of God, but let's see the mercy. It's here too. He's not hiding the mercy. Look at verse 7. And the people came to Moses and they said, We've sinned! For we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Oh, Moses, pray to the Lord that He takes away the serpent from us. He's not going to do that, actually. But Moses does pray for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Okay, make a fiery serpent yourself and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Imagine Moses. <laughs> Could you repeat that? What? So Moses goes. Apparently he makes, he's a uh, craftsman of sorts. He makes a bronze serpent and he raises it up on a pole just like the speaker is on a pole here. And he backs away. And verse 9 says, if the serpent bit anyone, he would just look at the bronze serpent and live. What's going on with this? Well, you have to remember the serpent in the story of the Bible so far is a symbol of the curse of sin. Remember Satan in the garden? He brought the curse. So the people are living in their own curse now. The consequences of their sin are biting them in the backside, literally in some cases. That's what the serpents are about. They're in the middle of the curse, but Grace here comes from the Lord. Moses, when he makes this bronze snake and he puts it up, the statue now embodies what is making the people die. If you have a Bible brain, a verse from 2 Corinthians 5.21 might come alive because Jesus Christ was made to be sin. The people are looking up at something that reflects their own curse. Just like Jesus was made to be the sin of the people. All they have to do is look and live. Maybe you've been bitten before by a cat that itches or a mosquito or maybe even a spider or a snake. What happens when you get bitten? 
When I get bitten, I tend to stare at it, right? I tend to scratch at it. Oh, I got this bug bite. I got this, the cat scratch me. I can't make... God is saying to the people, you cannot stare at your bite. You must stare at the serpent who embodied your curse. That's the only way you will live. Take your glance off of yourself. Look unto Jesus and you will live. In spite of their persistent rebellion and through his own judgment, God will save his own. Trust in me. Have confidence in me. Now, you may know that this passage actually serves as the prelude for the most famous passage in the Bible. Remember John 3.16? Well, in John 3, what was going on is Jesus is meeting covertly with this old guy Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. He was a true seeker. But he didn't want to come during the day because it would cause a stir. So he comes at night to Jesus and they're talking. And because he's a teacher of the law, Jesus starts sharing with him images from the Old Testament so that he would believe. And before he gets to John 3.16, in John 3.14, Jesus says this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever, what? Believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him so not perish but have everlasting life. The lifted up language is Jesus' euphemism for I'm dying. He's lifted up on a cross. So when you see that in John lifted up talk he's always talking about his own death. And like Nicodemus if any of us today are seeking eternal life we must only look to Jesus. Believe in him, follow him, trust in him. Turn away from the venomous sin that's in your nature and trust in Jesus. It's worth asking at this point, uh, what are some of the things that keep us from looking to Jesus? Author Joel Beek has some good ideas I thought I would share. Here's the first one. What keeps us from looking to Jesus? Well, it could be the bitterness of sin isn't real to you. You deny truly being bitten. A true looking to Christ is motivated by a mourning for sin and a realization that your case is fatal. Or another reason, you're busy trying other physicians. You're looking for conditions within to merit salvation. Most of our society is going to do that. They're going to look within themselves and try to be good enough. It's not going to work. You must look to Jesus, not within yourself. Third way, you look more to your sores of sin than to Christ's righteousness. That's the point of the snake. Got to look to him. If we do that, you undervalue the power of God and of Christ's blood. Don't forget what Luther said. He's famous for saying one drop of Christ's blood is sufficient to redeem a thousand worlds. Amen? Ah, that's good. Some of you, final reason, the unconverted person claims that the medicine is foolish. You've probably heard this before. If you've ever shared your faith. Well, why wouldn't the Lord simply prevent the snake bite in the first place, right? This is foolish. But his thoughts are far higher than our thoughts. God will glorify his justice and magnify his grace. You may not understand him, but you must bow before him. That's why we do Advent. He's coming. We must bow before him, not just on Sundays, but as we go in our relationships with our money, with our health. Jesus calls you today through this story. Look to me and live. Have confidence in me. One more story. Fourth one starts in chapter 22, goes through chapter 24. Now, this story is going to play out a little differently. The pattern is still there, but the focus is shifted. So what's the pattern we've seen so far throughout Numbers? The people, when they get hard times, they get uncomfortable, they turn away and they rebel. Well, that's still happening here. As we come across these chapters, we are told that the people are still rebelling. 
Here they're bonding with pagan women and they're worshiping the god Baal. Very sad. God responds in justice. This time 24,000 Israelites are left dead. So we again see the rebellion and the judgment of God. And we are warned. Don't be like that. Learn from their mistake. But in these chapters, the authors is going to zero in on not the people of God, but he zeroes in on a couple of folks who are not Israelites. They're like us. They're Gentiles. Let's see what he's going to do with them. Verse 22, midway through verse 4, chapter 22, we meet a couple of guys. First one, there's Balak, the son of Zippor. He's the king of Moab. And he's going to send messengers to Balaam. So don't get mixed up. There's Balak and Balaam. Balak's the king. Balaam is this prophet guy. He's the son of Bor at Pithor. It's near the river in the land of the people of Amal. And he says, call to Balaam, says the king, and tell him this. Behold, a people is come out of Egypt. And they cover the face of the earth. That's not true, but there were a lot of them. Seemed to him that they're everywhere. And they're dwelling opposite me. Come now and curse the people for me, since they are too mighty for me. What's going on here? Well, Balak is the king of Moab, which is a rival to Israel. And he's scared. He's seen a faithful God, and he knows the people on the move. So he gets this plan. He says, I'm going to hire Balaam to curse them so that they won't take over my people. Easy peasy. I got this. What happens? Well, you got to know who Balaam is. Balaam is a pagan himself, and he's apparently famous as this shaman for hire, a prophet for profit, if you would. He's a hall of famer at cursing people. That's what he does. Let's hire him. So he does it. And what we're seeing here is a test. Here's how the logic goes. Will God's faithfulness stand under the pressure of the most famous curse master in the land? If anybody can thwart God's purposes, it's this guy. Let's bring him in. So they call him in. But it's amazing what happens throughout the story. We don't have time to read it, but we see that even the mighty Balaam cannot keep God from loving his people with his committed love. Balaam hops on his donkey and he travels to do his cursing work. He's on his way. What happens is that angel appears in front of him. And get this. The donkey he's riding on sees the angel. But Balaam himself does not even see it. So much for this deep spiritual sensitivity. He can't even see it. Not until God intervenes and actually opens up the mouth of the donkey and the donkey starts speaking and the angel is revealed, Balaam looks like an inept fake prophet here. And he's supposed to be a personification of what our hearts look like when we try to turn against the living God. As you read the rest of the story here, 22, 23, 24, you should go home and read it because it's kind of comical if you understand what's going on. Three times Balaam tries to curse the people of the Lord. And three times the Lord takes it and puts blessings in his mouth. He goes to speak words of threatening, words of cursing. And what comes out are blessings for the people of God. It's not unlike the famous movie, A New Hope in the Star Wars movie. Maybe you've seen this scene it's a scene where our heroes, Luke and Obi-Wan, are driving in the cruisers, and the bad guys, the stormtroopers, they finally caught them. The stormtroopers all rush up, and they've got their guns, their armor. They're ready to arrest them. And one stormtrooper walks up, and he's going to arrest the heroes. And what he says is amazing. He says, we don't need to see his papers. You're like, oh, that's not arresting words. And over to the side, you see Obi-Wan's doing this. Oh, yeah. Jedi mind trick. First time we've seen this in the Star Wars world. What happens? Well, the arresting officer continues. He says, those aren't the droids we're looking for. Instead of saying stop, he says, you can go on about your business. 
and the heroes escaped. Their words were changed in the mouth. Bow him like the iconic, iconic villains in Star Wars. Bow him has now met his match in the one true living God. God's power and his faithfulness to his people will stymie his enemies. Only he can turn curses into blessings. And since it's Advent season, I want to point you to some Christmas pointers in the text here today. First off, remember the song that we sang, Joy to the World? We sang this verse together earlier. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Our God is undoing curses in Christ, even as we speak. Take hope. That's what happened with his coming. It gets even richer when you look at the words that God placed in the mouth of this false prophet, Balaam. First, as Balaam is leaving, he's failed. I tried to curse him, but I kept blessing him, so I'm out of here. He's leaving. He turns to the king, though, with one last word from God. And he says, oh yeah, verse 17 of chapter 24, he says, King, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter or a King shall rise out of Israel. Why is that significant? Well, don't forget who Balaam was. Chapter 23 says Balaam was from the east. He's not a Jew. He's a performer of divinations. The ancient uh, Jewish thinker named Philos, Philos, he looked at Balaam and he called him a magos. Now, if you glance forward to Matthew 2, at the coming of Jesus. Who do we see there? We see wise men who are from the east. They also specialize in divinations. Except the astrological kind. They are called there by Matthew Magi. And recall what the wise men say. At the coming of Christ. They come. Took them a while. They're looking for him. And what did they say? They said. Where is he who has born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These guys were far away and they saw a star rise and they thought, ah, must be with a Jewish king. How in the world could they put that together? They were reading their Bibles. They remembered this text from Numbers that said a star would come from Jacob and a king would rise up. So the wise men put it together. God's purposes will stand. Hymnist William Dix instructs us well when he writes in his Advent song, his poem here about the wise men. He says, as with gladness men of old did the guiding light behold, as with joy they held its light, leading onward, beaming bright. So, most gracious God, may we evermore be led to thee. We're to look at the wise men and come to Jesus. Also, look at Numbers 24, 9. This is just one portion of the third blessing that God gave Balaam. Here we read of a coming king. He said about this coming king, he says, He crouched and he laid down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him up. Who can rouse this guy up? This is actually a call backwards in the Bible to Genesis 49. When we see just about the exact same word. When God promises that a lion from the tribe of Judah will come and he will rule over all the nation. It's also, this lion image is a look forward we see in the book of Revelation, right? The book of Revelation chapter 5, we find John in a panic. He's having this vision, this dream, and inside the dream, God has all his purposes stored up for his people in a scroll. But John looks around and he sees no one worthy to open the scroll. He's in a panic. And we read in Revelation 5, 4, he says, John says, I began to weep. I weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll 
and its seven seals. After this, the Bible says there was a new song saying in heaven. What's so new about this song? Well, it's the scope of God's purposes are now broadened to touch every Gentile nation throughout the globe. Touched us, touches Japan, touches Nepal, the people and die people of China goes everywhere such that the heavenly beings in Revelation cry out, worthy are you, lion, lion that was mentioned in the book of Numbers, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, for every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The lion king, who is Jesus, was slain like a lamb coming to rule the whole earth. Today we read numbers. We celebrate Advent because we know Jesus is coming. The rest of the book of Numbers wraps up with a new census and a new generation of people start to drip into the promised land. So there's hope. But today my hope for you is that as we study these stories in the book of Numbers and we're warned against unbelief, against not trusting God, that you will turn in your heart. This week, this day, you have an opportunity to turn God and say, I admit, I'm not trusting you in this area. I'm keeping that to myself. I'm looking at my own wounds in this compartmentalized portion of my heart. God, today, I give it to you. I turn to you. I look to you. And in Jesus, I live. Let's pray together. Lord, you call to us today from your word. You call out, have confidence in me. God, I pray now that we would, that we would soak in the message of these numbers stories. That we have hearts that are prone to wonder, God. That we have hearts that can be entangled by sin. And yet, you're glorious in your justice and you're glorious in your grace and mercy towards us. But God, I pray that you would show Christ huge as our treasure this morning. Help us to seek refuge, not elsewhere, not in ourselves, but in you and you alone. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.